Welcome to Back to Health, your source for the latest in health, wellness, and medical care. Keeping you informed so you can make informed healthcare choices for yourself and your whole family. Back to Health features conversations about trending health topics and medical breakthroughs from our team of world-renowned physicians at Weill Cornell Medicine. I'm Melanie Cole, and today we're discussing minimally invasive brain tumor surgery. My guest is Dr. Theodore Schwartz. He's the David and Ursula Barnes Professor of Minimally Invasive Neurosurgery and the Director of Anterior Skull Base and Pituitary Surgery at Weill Cornell Medicine. Dr. Schwartz, please tell us about yourself and how you came to be named the David and Ursula Barnes Professor of Minimally Invasive Neurosurgery. I've been at Cornell for about 20 years now, uh, specializing in brain tumors and trying to develop new ways to take out tumors, particularly tumors that are hard to get to, in less invasive ways using natural corridors. And some of the natural corridors that we use are things like the nostrils, which is a cavity that we can go into up the nose. Um, we can make little incisions in the eyebrow, for example, and try to avoid doing surgeries where large parts of the skull are opened up and big skin incisions are made and the brain is sort of retracted out of the way in order to get to tumors that otherwise would be difficult to reach. So I've been working on these techniques for for many years, and a lot of the time we use um, illumination devices called endoscopes. And endoscopes are sort of like um, small, thin telescopes about the diameter of a pencil. And we can slide those endoscopes into small openings in order to see and look around. And previously, a lot of these surgeries were done with microscopes because we do need to magnify very small, fine structures, nerves and arteries and things like that around the brain. And with endoscopes, you can go through small corridors because you can Medicine, flip them WC in and look around. But with microscopes, you really need a big health, uh, region that's me. exposed because the microscope is very big. And so it sits outside the patient's Welcome head. To you need to, to get all that light in there for the uh, in order in to health, see. Wellness, and medical so care. there was a Keeping particular patient, so you this gentleman, uh, David Barnes, for yourself who and your whole lived family. in London. Back to health features conversations had a very about trending health topics and medical breakthroughs from our and team of world-renowned physicians at Weill Cornell Medicine. In his I'm Melanie Cole, and, his and today and we're discussing that. new treatments so for subdural hematomas. My guest is Dr. Jared Knopman. He's board-certified neurosurgeon and, and interventional neuroradiologist who specializes well, you know, in cerebral in vascular tumor, disorders, and he has performed more than 400 cerebral vascular procedures per year at Weill Cornell Medicine. And he Dr. found Notman, please me through tell some us of these surgeons who said there's a, a guy in, in New York who's trying to do this a little differently. And Outro. he sent me his films and he said, you know, is there Thank you so a minimally much, invasive Dr. way for joining you to us do this? Today and and for I said, well, your yeah, I think so. I think we can so very basically make a little incision in your eyebrow in this situation. That was the best approach for him. So that we can um, put all understand what's going on in the brain. It's absolutely fascinating. Thank you again for being with us. You know, this concludes long. today's episode of Back to over Health. From London. We'd like to we thank did our surgery listeners and, it went and invite our audience you know, to download, subscribe, rate, and days. review Back he to Health in a, on a Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and, and Google Play Music. To London. For more and health the tips, story goes, please you know, visit wildcornell.org and He's a gentleman of means, and so I said, you know, if you ever want to support our programs here, you know, we like to train other surgeons as to how to do these operations. Uh, and Hold it, you know, on. we have to sort of defray the cost of paying yeah, salary and things something. like that. You know, let us know if you want to ever what want to make a donation one? to that so we can help our educational program here. 
And so, you know, he thought about it a little bit, and then eventually he decided to Not go nice. ahead. You know, he's a very generous guy. He's a wonderful guy. Zero, one, um, him and his wife are both sure, just spectacular, and they, they really wanted, you know, for other people to have the opportunity to be treated in the way that he was treated, because he so appreciated the fact that he found a different way to do the surgery that was really scary for him, which is this, you know, big traditional operation. So he um, donated some money and, and allowed me to become the David Nursel Barnes Professor of Minimally Invasive Neurosurgery. And we use that money really to train other surgeons. So we, you know, pay salaries and malpractice expenses for surgeons who come here to train and learn how to do these techniques so they can then travel abroad or travel to their home institutions or anywhere else in America and and be able to propagate the techniques that we've developed here and offer it to more and more patients because obviously I can only treat so many patients but the more surgeons I train to do this then I'm able to touch many more patients around the country and around the world so we really try to to teach as much as we can. What a wonderful story Dr. Schwartz. Thank you for sharing that with us. So let's talk about brain tumors themselves. Do we know what causes them and a lot of people have this question if cell phones are contributing to brain tumors. Right. That's a great question. And a lot of patients ask me that. You know, I, I, I have a practice that focuses on brain tumors. So as you can imagine, a new patient who comes into my office has already been told by their internist or their neurologist that they've now been diagnosed with a brain tumor. And it's terrifying. And they come to see me with that diagnosis already in hand. I'm usually not the first one to tell them. And they have a million questions about it. And, you know, they're terrified about the fact that they're seeing a surgeon, that they may need brain surgery. And they always want to know what caused this, you know. And, and along with what caused it is, does every member of my family need to get a, a scan in order to make sure that we all don't have it? And can I give this to my children? You know, a lot of adults are terrified that if they have something, they can pass it on. So what I tell most of my patients, and, and it's it's true here, is that... Um, most brain tumors are not inherited. Uh, they're not genetically uh, passed on. There's some rare genetic disorders where people do have uh, tumors based on a genetic abnormality that can be passed on, but that's extremely rare. That's the exception. Most are really pop up incidentally uh, and have nothing to do with their uh, genetics that can be passed on. And I also reassure my patients that there's nothing they did, and this is true in the vast majority of cases, there's nothing they did that caused them to get this brain tumor. There was no behavior that they did. There's nothing that they should have eaten. There's nothing that they ate that they shouldn't have eaten. Uh, and it's definitely not cell phones based on all the information we have. And when you look at the literature on the relationship between cell phones and brain tumors, uh, there certainly are some papers that have shown that there may be a link. But there are just as many papers that show that there's not a link. And a lot of these studies are not that well done. You know, the, the, the way scientists do research and the way studies are performed that, that allows us to really know something is if you can do a randomized controlled study that is prospective, that follows a group of patients where half of them use cell phones and half of them don't, and you see how many of them develop brain tumors over the next 20, 30, 40 years. Well, that study has never been done, and it's never going to be done. Most of the studies that have been done are retrospective, where they take a group of patients with brain tumors and they say, oh, did you use your cell phone and how much did you use it? Or which side of the, did you hold your cell phone? Which hand did you hold it, the right or the left side, and does that correlate with your tumor? And those studies are flawed, and the data from those studies are flawed. And so when you pool all those flawed studies together, you've got a couple that show a positive link 
but you have just as many that show a negative link, and you pull them together, and there ends up being no link. And if you only look at the ones that show the positive link, you can get uh, excited about that, and journalists can write papers. Oh, this paper, this uh, journalist can write a, an article saying this paper just came out showing a link, but they're only looking at one paper, and they're not saying, well, how well done was this paper, and how does this balance out against all the papers that didn't show a link, because those don't get reported. They're not excited. We don't see them in the news. So the link between cell phones and brain tumors really is very, very, very flimsy. I use my cell phone. My children use cell phones. And I tell my patients that that is not the cause and they really shouldn't worry about it. Dr. Schwartz, people get a headache and right away they worry about a brain tumor. What's the clinical presentation? What are some of the first signs and symptoms of a brain tumor that would send somebody to see whether it's their primary care provider or another physician in the first place? Another great question. So um, headaches uh, tend not to be the first symptoms that someone has when they are diagnosed with a brain tumor. I can't say it never happens because sometimes it does, but the vast majority of headaches are not caused by brain tumors. As we know, people get headaches all the time, uh, and most of these people do not have brain tumors. So when you have something in the brain, like a tumor, that irritates the brain, you often get a symptom related to the brain being irritated, and the, the brain has no pain fibers. So the, you can touch the brain, you won't, wouldn't feel anything. So the brain does not sense pain, and it doesn't sense even touch to it. Uh, but what happens is if you have a tumor that's pushing on part of the brain that moves your arm, you'll have weakness in that arm. And if it's pushing on part of the brain that's important for vision, uh, then you won't be able to see on one side or the other side. And, and if it's irritating the brain, you could have a seizure based on the fact that the brain is sort of tickled by this tumor and can have some swelling in it and you can get a seizure. So it's much more common to have things like, you know, double vision, loss of vision, weakness, uh, numbness, <clears throat> trouble with your speech, language difficulty, than it is a headache. A headache really is, is much less common, although not unheard of. Do you feel more people are being diagnosed these days because maybe they've had a brain scan after, say, a car accident or other traumatic injury? And I appreciate you explaining the cell phone because people do have that question, but there are other reasons that someone might have a brain scan. And if it's caught early, are there more options for treating it? So the answer is um, uh, no and yes, or actually yes and yes. So the the first yes was that uh, you know, the MRI scan was developed in the mid-80s. And before that, we couldn't do MRI scans. And so we couldn't really see a lot of things that were subtle in the brain that might not show up on a CAT scan. CAT scan was developed in the 70s. And certainly in the last 20 years, we get more and more MRI scans because the, there are more MRI machines. The cost of doing an MRI scan goes down. And it's much more common to order an MRI scan. MRI scan is a very sensitive test. And we often pick up a lot of small incidental brain tumors that would not be seen on a CAT scan and certainly that a patient would not know they had if they didn't get an MRI scan, even though they're getting their MRI scan for something completely unrelated to the tumor that is found. And then you face the interesting scenario where you've got a patient with no symptoms and a very small brain tumor. What do you do? The first thing you do is you try to figure out what kind of tumor it is based on where it is and what it looks like on the MRI scan. And often you can figure that out uh, just based on experience because certain tumors present in certain places and they look a particular way. 
And once you know what it is, you can figure out what the best way to treat it is. And often, for an incidentally picked up tumor like that, the best treatment is really to do nothing and just to follow it. And very often, that's what we'll do. We'll say, well, you know what, come back in three months, we'll get another scan, or come back in six months or even a year, and we'll follow it and see what happens. Because it may be that this tumor is so slow growing that it really doesn't need treatment. And let's say you get this scan when you're 75 years old, you may never need treatment for the rest of your life. You get it when you're 20 years old, that's a different matter. We may follow it, it may grow a little bit, and we may say, you know, you're pretty young. If it keeps growing at this rate, you're going to have uh, issues. Why don't we deal with it now, or why don't we deal with it in a year or two? So we do pick them up more, in, more frequently because of uh, MRI scans, and then we have to make a decision based on that sort of screening as to whether it's worth intervening or not, because Every intervention that we have, even minimally invasive things like radiation, have side effects, just like surgery has side effects. And you have to weigh the side effects against the risk that that tumor is going to cause a problem in the rest of that patient's lifetime or in the, in the next five to 10 years. And that's that risk-benefit weighing that, uh, that we do as physicians to try to figure out, you know, how quickly is this growing? How old are you? How likely is this to cause symptoms? Do we need to treat it? what the best uh, treatment is. So there's sort of a complicated algorithm that goes into making those decisions. Certainly, if we think it's a malignant tumor, we might intervene much more quickly. Um, but for benign tumors, it becomes a little bit more ambiguous as to whether to treat it and how to treat it. Then tell us about some of your procedures and what are the benefits for the patient using minimally invasive brain surgery? And Dr. Schwartz, what are the benefits for you, the surgeon, with these types of procedures? So um, it's a funny uh, question you ask in a way, asking what the benefits are for me, because I often tell the, the, the surgeons that I'm training, the residents, the fellows, that minimally invasive surgery is easier on the patient, but it's harder on the surgeon. So the truth is the benefits are really mostly for the patient, not for the surgeon, because there actually can be technically, in some situations, much more difficult because you're working through a very narrow corridor with smaller, you know, instruments and uh, less maneuverability, um, and they can often take longer, particularly if you don't have a lot of experience in them. The patients almost definitely do better uh, if they're well-selected, right? You have to choose the right patient for a minimally invasive approach. You can't just do it on everybody just because you know how to do it. You have to make sure that it's indicated for that patient with a tumor in that location. Otherwise, you may be better off using a standard approach, using a craniotomy, opening up the head. So when you start out, it obviously takes much longer because you're learning a new technique, a new approach, uh, and you want to take your time and be very careful. And as you get more facile at it, you get more skilled at it, you can do it much more quickly, then um, it's good for you and good for the, for the patient. But uh, ultimately, what's good for the physician is not as important as what's good for the patient. So, you know, we do and I do what's indicated for that patient, um, regardless of whether it's uh, better for me. What's better for me is if my patients are happier, my patients are doing better, if they get out of the hospital more quickly, if they see me in follow-up and they, you know, don't have an incision and they don't have any complaints and their tumor is gone, then that's great for me as well. And so these minimally invasive approaches allow me to offer those types of treatments for my patients with brain tumors to try to get them out of the hospital more quickly, try to get their tumors out more safely uh, with less morbidity and risk to them. 
What's the average recovery time for having a brain tumor removed with surgery? And what is life like for the patient after surgery, Dr. Schwartz? Tell us about not only the physical changes, but if there are any psychological changes that go along or cognitive changes that might go along with this type of surgery. So it's hard to generalize about brain tumors as a group because it's all about location. It's like real estate. It all depends on where in the brain your brain tumor is and how much it's impacting your function at the moment, right? So we know that there are parts of the brain that are important for memory and there are parts of the brain that are important for language and vision and hearing and touch and every sensation that there is uh, in you know, complex cognitive uh, thinking. And if you have a brain tumor that's in a very sensitive location and that's already impaired that function, then that function may not come back when you take the brain tumor out because sometimes the tumor has already impaired that function to the extent that removing it will not get it, make it better. Other times, the tumor is just pushing on an area, and when you take the tumor out, the patient recovers. And that recovery may require rehabilitation. It may require a week. It may require 10 months. It all varies on the degree of the disability, the size of the tumor, the difficulty of taking it out, how stuck it is to everything else. So as much as I'd love to give you a generalization of the recovery from brain tumor surgery, I really can't because there is such a gamut. Uh, based on the location, the size of the tumor, the you know the success of the surgery, um, so many different factors weigh into that. But what I will say is that brain surgery is incredibly safe. Um, the vast majority of patients will you know not only recover from their surgery, they'll leave the hospital and they'll you know go home. Um, and the vast majority of those will return to their baseline function at least for a period of time. Uh, and so it's really not the surgery that's the worry for most patients. The, the really scary thing is if it's a malignant brain tumor, if it's a tumor that can't be cured with surgery, if they need additional therapy afterwards, and how effective that therapy is going to be is usually more of a concern than just the surgery itself. The surgery, you know, we're, we've been doing this uh, for a long time. It's evolved dramatically. Uh, it's not like a caveman uh, surgery. It's very, very sophisticated computer driven uh, surgery that has been honed over the years so that someone who's been, you know, doing it for uh, several years, uh, you know, acquires the the necessary expertise to really do a a great job and get patients uh, home and have them recover. As you wrap up in this absolutely fascinating topic, Dr. Schwartz, give the listeners your best advice, information, or hope about minimally invasive brain tumor surgery, and if there's some promising new therapies for brain tumors that you see on the horizon. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I think that it's such an exciting time because the way we treat tumors is evolving rapidly and dramatically. And those uh, dramatic changes are not only in how we do the surgery, because you know, we, we do have these minimally invasive approaches to get patients in and out of surgery much more quickly. Uh, and there's many more techniques that are being developed, whether it's robotic surgery or the, the use of fluorescent dyes that we can inject into the bodies that will make the tumor light up so we can very clearly see the margins of the tumor. Now, those are all, you know, brand new innovations that we've brought to the field of, of neurosurgery to make it safer. But in addition, there are therapies uh, for example, immunotherapies or vaccine therapies for tumors that allow us to uh, treat 
tumors with chemotherapy and, and more targeted radiation uh, in a more delicate way, in a more tumor-specific way. We can now do very specific testing of tumor types, looking at their genetics so that we can learn everything about that tumor and which chemotherapy is the best uh, chemotherapy or immunotherapy for that specific tumor in that specific individual. It's becoming much more patient-oriented, uh, precision medicine that we can apply to the treatment of tumors. And with every new uh, you know, innovation that we see in the world around us, if you think about it, you know, cell phones and electric cars and the internet and all this, all of that is, is moving into surgery and moving into the operating room and the use of, you know, 3D technology uh, to help prepare surgeons for surgery, to help reproduce uh, the locations of the anatomy. All of that that we see in the world around us uh, is also infiltrating into our ability to treat patients with brain tumors. So it's a very exciting time to, uh, for a surgeon. It's certainly not an exciting time to get a brain tumor. There's never a good time to get one. Um, but if, God forbid, that does happen to someone, they should know that uh, there's so many treatments out there and there's so many people working on moving the field forward and not just making the surgery better, but all the treatments associated with uh, brain tumors better, safer uh, for every patient. Wow, thank you so much, Dr. Schwartz, for being on with us today and for sharing your stories and your expertise and explaining this to the listeners so very clearly so that we have an understanding and even a sense of hope of what's on the horizon for brain tumor surgery and minimally invasive. As you have described, so many of the new technologies that are helping you as a surgeon to really advance this field forward. That concludes today's episode of Back to Health. We'd like to thank our listeners and invite our audience to download, subscribe, rate, and review Back to Health on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play Music. For more health tips, please go to wildcornell.org and search podcasts. Parents, don't forget to check out Kids HealthCast. If you or a loved one is undergoing cancer treatment, rehabilitation medicine can help with recovery and ease painful side effects. Listen to Back to Health. Wild Cornell Medicine's podcast series dedicated to rehabilitation medicine to learn more about the ways psychiatrists can help. All information contained in this podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes. The information is not intended nor suited to be a replacement or substitute for professional medical treatment or for professional medical advice relative to a specific medical question or condition. We urge you to always seek the advice of your physician or medical professional with respect to your medical condition or questions. While Cornell Medicine makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast, and any reliance on such information is done at your own risk. Participants may have consulting, equity, board board membership, or other relationships with pharmaceutical, biotech, or device companies unrelated to their role in this podcast. No payments have been made by any company to endorse any treatments, devices, or procedures. And while Cornell Medicine does not endorse, approve, or recommend any product, service, or entity mentioned in this podcast. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and do not represent the perspectives of Weill Cornell Medicine as an institution.